Genesis 1, 1 through 25. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day and God said let there be lights in the expanse of the, the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens so god created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and god saw that it was good and god blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the, the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Did you hear the repetition in the passage? It can be good for us to hear something read out loud so that we would gain understanding of the main themes that the Lord wants us to draw from this amazing part of his word. One of the phrases that we heard several times was a reference to the sequence of the days of creation 
there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And the numbers count up um, in our passage to six and eventually go to seven. So the modern American listener um, who is hearing this repetition of the counting of days of creation will ask a good question. They'll ask, does this passage teach that God made the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour days? This is often called the view of, old, of young earth creation. Um, this is the belief that, that God did these things in sort of the same calendar that our normal days go today, that, that a reference to a day is 24 hours and there were six of them in God's process of creation. Before we get to answering that question, we should recognize an incorrect assumption that many people have in understanding or thinking about the history of interpreting Genesis chapter 1. I'll unpack what that assumption might be, an assumption that maybe many of us would have as we come to the text this morning. You might assume that a long time ago, before there was scientific knowledge about the speed of light and dinosaurs and um, shifting tectonic plates, that everyone in the church agreed that this passage should be interpreted as six 24-hour days. That assumption might be followed by another assumption that as humanity has gained scientific knowledge, our beliefs have transitioned from that literal interpretation that everyone used to have in, say, the year 400 AD into a more sort of allegorical or symbolic translation which many people hold to today. And so you can sort of hear the, the course or the trajectory of, a, of an assumption or a storyline like that. It would be that before there was scientific knowledge, people would have believed this literally. And, and eventually, as we've gained scientific knowledge, we believe it more and more allegorically or symbolically. It's a sort of a neat and tidy storyline, but it is wrong in terms of the history of interpreting Genesis chapter 1. The reality is that the matter of how God made the heavens and the earth has been a source of debate throughout the ages, including even in the ancient church. Trustworthy Christian teachers have, have landed on different sides of this debate of old earth or a younger earth. And that's not just in the modern era, more scientific era, but that's right there in Augustine's interpretation, actually, of the passage in the fourth century. In the early church, um, Augustine and Origen, two influential early church theologians, taught that this passage is telling us the six days represent the orderliness of God's creative process and how each day builds on the one before, um, maybe thinking of an analogy of how Augustine would have interpreted, interpreted this passage. He almost would have said, he didn't use this illustration, but but it, it's like floors of a building, and, and each floor is built on the, the, the floor below it. And so each day of creation is like adding another floor to the building of God's creation. And so he interpreted it in a very allegorical or symbolic way. Many other people interpret it as a literal six days, 24 hours of God's creative work. 
In writing about this, the great theologian Herman Bavink notes that there are no creeds or confessions that specify that belief in six 24-hour days is required for consideration to be a Christian, which is an amazing thing. Herman Bavink is writing this when the debate about evolution is raging. He lived in the late 1800s where the theories of Charles Darwin were seemingly turning upside down people's understanding of a passage like this. And so Herman Bavink comes along and says, yes, but there are no creeds or confessions that specify in order to be considered a Christian, you must believe in six 24-hour literal days. Augustine put it this way, and, and I like what he said about this passage and about the work of the Spirit in our interpretation of it. He said, we do not read in the gospel that the Lord said, I will send you a counselor who will teach you about the courses of the sun and the moon. For he wanted to make Christians, not mathematicians. Right? And so the reference there is, it doesn't say that it's bad to be a Christian scientist or physicist or mathematician, but the purpose of the word of God and the spirit revealing to us the truth of God today is not so much that we would understand all of the intricacies of how God made the heavens and the earth, but that we would believe that it was God who made the heavens and the earth. So, even as we start thinking about this passage, let's not fall into the trap of turning the first chapter of the Bible into an opportunity for division, pride, and arguing. Isn't that a sad thing that, that Satan has used this passage, the first chapter of the Bible, to divide Christians against each other? And it has happened so often that, that there are those in the old earth camp who scorn and scoff at those who would hold to six literal days of creation. And certainly the this, this same is also true that there would be those in the young earth camp who would say, if you don't believe this, then you don't believe the Bible. We're not going to fall into that trap today. Brothers and sisters, there are good arguments from science and scripture for both sides. It's important to say that. There are good arguments from the scriptures and from science for both sides of old earth and young earth. And from studying the text and the various options, the overall message, though, is clear. Let's not get distracted by the how as much as what is happening. God creating the heavens and the earth. One God creating it all from nothing and creating everything in the heavens and the earth by the word of his power, or the power of his word, sorry. So, this teaching was present in our text through the phrase that each according to its kind. Did you notice that phrase just really driven home, particularly towards the end of the passage? And you would say, well, how does that connect to it's, it being God that is making each one of these things? This is a phrase that we could easily skip over, but but recognizing that God created all the different types of plants and animals, we're proclaiming that it was God who made ostriches and meerkats and badgers and oak trees and, and kelp forests in the ocean, that it was God who made each of these things, that they did not evolve by chance or by simply natural selection. It was God who made it. It was God who designed these things. 
It was God who created each star, each planet, each type of bird or fish or creature that walks along the ground. So the Christian doesn't ascribe the development of any of these things to blind chance or natural selection. The Christian, based on this passage, says God made those things. He designed them well. He made them as he wanted them to be, and he called them good. So this means that God delights in diversity in the world that he has made. Um, That's really woven into this little statement that each according to its kind, that God made not just one animal to live on the land and one fish to swim in the sea and one kind of bird, but that God delighted in creating all different kinds of birds and fish and animals and even all different kinds of planets and stars as well. God delights in diversity in the world that he has made. And Herman Bavink, um, to re- reference him again, re- refers to this so, so powerfully in some teaching about um, how good it is and how delighted in diversity God is. Everything, wrote Bavink, was created with a nature of its own and rests in ordinances established by God. So all this is wrapped up in this phrase, each according to its kind. Sun, moon, and stars have their own unique task. Plants, animals, and humans are distinct in nature. There is the most profuse diversity, and yet in that diversity there is also a superlative kind of unity. The foundation of both diversity and unity is God. So we'll explain maybe what Bavink is getting at there. Think of how you see yourself. um, you were made by God as an individual who is unique. You were made by God according to, to your kind, who you are with your personality, interests, with your gifts, um, with your, your inclinations, that you were made unique and special You were made by God, which makes you like everyone else who has ever lived. And so this wonderful teaching of Genesis 1 recognizes that God makes a diverse panoply of creatures. And he loves all of the different ways that not just birds and fish and animals were created, but but all of the different ways that people are created as well. And there's a, a beautiful diversity to it, but also a unity that all of it was made by God himself. So applying it to to Nathan Pinelli, who's baptized today. Nathan is a unique individual because God made him one of a kind. God made him like he has not made anyone else ever. But Nathan is the same as every other person in that he was made by God. Made by God. In the image of God. And so when, when we listen to common phrases in the passage, one that would easily stand out is, is not just this creation, each according to their kinds, but that God is calling each of these different things good. Did you notice that repetition in the passage as I read? Now, this doesn't mean that it was just good in God's sight, as if God has an opinion. No, God was labeling these things good. He was making them good and recognizing the goodness objectively of what he had made. 
God was saying the light and the sun, the moon, stars, oceans, mountains, and animals were good creations. And this should actually be easy for us to agree with. It doesn't take a whole lot of faith to see that there's so much goodness in the world that God has made. We taste delicious food, and we say, that is good. We even smell a cinnamon roll or bacon. (laughs) We say, that is good. (laughs) Smells delicious. We see a sunrise, like we've had in the recent week or so. We say, that is good. We uh, hear a babbling baby. Isn't that so good? We make a new friend, and we agree with God. There is a profound goodness to the world that God has made. Even after all the stains of sin have entered into the world, we still see so many glimpses, so many revelations of the goodness of God's creation. What a contrast to the world envisioned by the theology of Francis Crick that we started by hearing about. That there is objective good, that that we strive to know better, that we worship God for creating. What a contrast to the, what would be called nihilistic or fatalistic or pessimistic theology of something like, it's all just matter, there is no good or evil, we're all just here for a little while, and then we die and become worm food. Brothers and sisters, I believe that if the Spirit is at work in your heart, in your mind today, you will say there is good and evil. There is right and wrong. And all of that is built on the foundation of there is a God who made the heavens and the earth. It's so important for us to learn from this passage that the goodness of creation wasn't just God's opinion as if he thought it was good and there could possibly be a way that it wasn't good. That's what we might um, say one band is good. Somebody might say Taylor Swift is good and the other person might say I don't think she's very good. And that would be like a reason for debate, right? That's not what we find happening in Genesis chapter 1. God is saying and proclaiming something is good. He saw that it was good. This is partly the basis for us making claims about ethics, making claims about truth as Christians, that goodness isn't just a matter of opinion. It's not just a a cultural way of understanding how we should live or what should be happening in the world, but there is objective truth and falsehood, good and evil, right and wrong, and these things aren't just a matter of perspective or someone's opinion. We find in the first chapter of the Bible there is goodness that is objectively that way. God delights in what is good. And what is the application for us today? That the Christian also should seek what is good, should delight in it, should give God thanks for it. The Christian will desire what God calls good. And that isn't just something that feels good or seems good to us but the Christian should desire what God calls good. And so that is God's law. Many times in Scripture, the law of God is called good. You read in Psalm 119, and that is the main theme of the longest chapter of the Bible, the goodness of the law of God, of living in God's way. The Christian can recognize, proclaim, it is good. 
to know God, to know his law, his commands, and live in that way. Of course, we, we have unity. We know that unity is also objectively good. The Bible says in the Psalms, how good and pleasing it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And there's a, a unity, a um, um, synchronicity, a cooperation in God's creation in the passage that we read that is so good. So it's not as though each component is just individually good, but God is looking at each of these things and saying it's all good together. It's working together. And don't we experience that in church when we have unity? In a family when there's peace? Certainly we experience it through Christ and being reunited to God. But that is objectively good. So it's something we should seek. The presence of God is good to a Christian. The presence of God, of course, is everywhere in creation, in the story we read, and even still today. And that's something that we should also then seek. It is good to be in God's presence. And the final phrase that we'll consider today, uh, one that we could would skip by, but really is helpful in getting to that question of um, the days of creation and understanding that more accurately. We heard several times, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day, the second day. I just have a blank there because it's said six different times. The teaching here is repeated for each day of creation, and you might wonder, why should we pay so much attention to the evening and morning? I'm going to ask what, sound, what might sound like a silly question, but um, and maybe a trivial question, but I think it could unlock something for our understanding of the passage. When does a day begin? What is the moment a day begins? What do you, you know, maybe we won't get, take a poll exactly, but um, there have been differing opinions on that throughout history. When a day starts. Today we would say, when do we celebrate the new year? It's when the clock strikes midnight because we have clocks now and digital clocks, atomic clocks that tell us a new day is starting at 12 midnight. And so a lot of people would say that's the beginning of a day. It was the beginning of a year on January 1. That's a, a very modern way of thinking about when a day begins. Um, many cultures in the past considered the sunrise to be the start of a new day. When that first glimpse of actually seeing the sun is when the day starts. In Jewish culture, many people thought of things differently. They believed that the day began when the sun went down. The next day began. If you know much about Sabbath observance in Israel, the Sabbath begins at sunset on Friday. And it goes through to sunset on Saturday, the seventh day. And so, in that way of thinking, the evening is the start. And the morning is what come, what follows after. Again, it's kind of a topsy-turvy way of understanding the beginning of a day. And we find that in our text. And there was evening at the start. And then there was morning each day of creation. So why does this matter? Why do we get into maybe some of this trivia or historical context? Because we see in creation, in the creation story, that from the evening, God made the morning. From 
the darkness, God made light. And you see that in each day of creation. From emptiness, from nothing, God made the world. In each day of creation, God brings something from nothing. After the evening came the morning in each day of creation. Last week we considered how the method of creation points us forward to the work of Christ. And we can find that in this simple phrase that we could skip over. And there was evening and there was morning each day of creation. Now it isn't morally wrong to think of the day beginning at midnight or when the sun rises, but consider how this evening before morning might change our understanding of the world, of our lives, of a church, of your career, of parenting, of all kinds of different things that we experience every day. If the, if the day begins at sunrise, um, allegorically speaking, and ends with darkness, then that could be kind of a parable of how some people think of their life, their career, or a church. It starts with light, starts with Everything kind of being in place and in order with, with hopefulness and then it goes you know, well maybe for a while and falls into darkness and that's at the end of the day. Again, it isn't morally wrong to think of a day in that kind of way, but it's an interesting parable for us to consider. So, if we have more of an evening before morning approach to life though, it will impact how we understand our own lives, uh, our politics, our careers, our church life, and just use the example of a child in, in explaining this, um, this understanding. The world tells us that a baby is a blank slate and that the world teaches a baby to hate and to disrespect people and to do what's wrong. And so that's the sort of evening coming after morning mentality, isn't it? That things overall fall apart and go the wrong way. When this is your view, the goal becomes preserving things how they started. And don't we worship youth in our culture and want to hold on to that and keep people young and return to our youth because we're afraid of the dark, afraid of what comes in the future, afraid of aging. But if you recognize that we are sinners by nature after the fall of Adam and Eve. We are born into darkness. And that God speaks light into the darkness. And he formed the whole earth out of nothing. That there was evening and there was morning each day. Then you'll have hope. This is how we can approach something like grief as well. Losing a loved one. Somebody that you know, who you love, has, has died. And the Bible says that that isn't just the end of something, but that's an evening where there will be a morning. That's a dark time that God will speak light into. Even death points us forward to a new morning where God will miraculously make life. So we could think of Genesis 1 as saying each day began with an evening but then came the morning and God made something good. This is exactly what Jesus teaches or what the, the Gospel of John teaches about Jesus in John 1, the opening 
verses that talk so much about the beginning of John 1, referring to Christ. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we could say spiritually speaking, um, the morning, the light of Christ will always overcome the darkness, the evening. Isaiah once wrote that sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning because God is speaking into the darkness of our lives, the needs of our lives, redeeming us, drawing us into the light. Isn't it interesting what happened when Jesus died on the cross? What happened? Darkness all of a sudden over Jerusalem. As I've often thought about the darkness over Jerusalem on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, my mentality has often been that that is the end of just Jesus' earthly life. But think of it in the sense of creation here. And there was evening because a morning was coming. Because there was a resurrection about to happen. When Jesus died on the cross, a darkness falls over Jerusalem and that wasn't the sad conclusion of the work of Jesus. It was the start of a new day and that would begin with Jesus' resurrection, it says in the passage. Um, While it was still dark, they went to the tomb and found Jesus was risen. So he, he is risen into a world, into a new day, a new morning, and that gives the Christian hope. The method of God's creation points us forward to the work of Christ. Now, just in closing, I want to say it is unfortunate that I'm preaching this indoors because it would be good for us to be on the rim of the Grand Canyon or at the beach or um, on a mountaintop or something like that. Um, but I, we, we think, I want to say that because this isn't just a lecture, you know, about information of the days of creation and even things like morning and evening, but, but these are truths for us to learn, phrases for us to pay close attention to that will carry us, that would call out our worship of God, That was one of the main themes, particularly of the ancient handlings of Genesis 1. That instead of getting bogged down by all the scientific questions, so many of the the church fathers, uh, Basil of Caesarea being one, would say, this is a passage that calls us to worship God, our maker, the one who brings mornings out of evenings. So, Brothers and sisters, telling you about the glory of creation could feel a little bit like me telling you about a great movie that I've seen. It would be better if you just go see the movie. It would be better if you just uh, open your eyes to what is good, to all of the mornings that God is bringing out of evenings in our world. Rather than just hearing about God's amazing work in creation, I encourage you to experience it and worship God for it. So go into the world with an expectation that God will make good things every day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you for the good 
things that you have done, the mighty works that you have, have done in creating the world, making us, making everything in it. It all belongs to you. And so, God, we pray that we would seek what is good, that we would live with hope, that you continue to bring mornings out of evenings, and that you make good things every day. God, we pray that we would live with faith and that we would trust you, our maker. In Jesus' name, amen.